Well, I remember when I was in school, when I was in grade school, we learned about what, are, what is often called the three modes of persuasion. And this was, uh, comes from Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and the Greeks came up with kind of three aspects to every good argument, the three modes of persuasion. In other words, if you want to persuade someone of what you believe, these three things need to be present in your argument. You may have heard of these uh, when you were at school, when you were growing up at some time, and although you can go off to college and really dive much deeper into these things, uh, the basic kind of you know, modes of persuasion 101 usually sounds something like this. There's ethos, the Greek word ethos, which was an appeal to authority, right? It's establishing your credibility. Uh, why should you believe what I say? Do I have any knowledge, any background in this? Do I have anything to present to you that sort of establishes my authority? You ought to listen to me on this. And we see the Apostle Paul do this throughout the book of Galatians, primarily right at the beginning. Right? We spent a lot of time looking at Paul establishing, no, I'm not inferior to the Apostles. I was one in harmony with the Apostles. I was called by Christ just like them. They accepted me. Right? We spent a good portion of this letter establishing, no, Paul, I am an Apostle of Christ. I do have a commission just like the other Apostles. The other form of persuasion is what's known as logos. And this is a word that you should be familiar with because this is what John, in the epic prologue to the book of John, described the pre-incarnate Christ as, the eternal logos. Now that word in Greek was very big. It had a, a, a large, what we call, semantic range, which means there's lots of different definitions that would fit under that word. But the way it's used in our particular context is logos is where we get our word logic from. So the other form of Persuasion is logic and reasoning. And we've seen Paul do that as well. Paul has done that two different ways. He's, he's, he's mounted many logical arguments against the Judaizers. Remember, he said stuff like, Did you receive the Spirit by faith or by works of the law? Right? This kind of rhetorical, let's think about this. Right? Let's, are you being logical or are you being consistent? But what we've also seen in terms of logos is an appeal to the Scriptures themselves. And we're going to really hit that next week when we finish chapter 4. But Paul has also been saying, that's interesting, let's go to the scriptures. Let's see whose gospel is consistent with the Abrahamic covenant. Go to Genesis with me. Let's study the scriptures. So Paul has mounted his appeal to authority. I'm an apostle. He's mounted his, his logos, scriptural proof, logical proof. And I think the third aspect is also something we see throughout Paul. But primarily, we're going to see it in our text today. And it's called pathos. Or what is called an appeal to emotion. Now, this can be abused. Certainly, all of these can actually be abused. All of these are also uh, fall into other... When they're abused to their extremes, they actually become fallacies. But when they're used correctly, as I think Paul does, they're very, very helpful. And an appeal to emotion is sort of getting people to emotionally empathize with where you're coming from. And I think we see Paul do that in our text today. So we're going to look at the pathos, if you will, of Paul's argument to the Galatians against the Judaizers. If you would open up to Galatians chapter 4, verse 12 through 20. Paul is going to change his tone and he's going to get a little emotional on us, if you will, but not in a bad way. Galatians chapter 4, being in verse 12. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, I titled this sermon, The Power of Nostalgia. I think that's sort of Paul's emotional appeal here, his pathos, the, the power of nostalgia. You know what nostalgia is. It's, it's when you, you reminisce on the good old days. It's when you see something or smell something or hear something, and it reminds you of a, a time in your past life when things were sweet, when things were good. And that's essentially how Paul appeals to them. Paul reminds them, remember the good old days? Remember those days of sweet communion? Remember when I very first met you? And how God brought me to you because I had an ailment. I was sick. And God used that sickness to bring me to you. And you accepted me. And you loved me so much, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. Remember those days. Remember that communion. What's happened? What's happened? I'm your, I'm so, I'm your enemy now? In other words, this is Paul's way of saying during this potential breakup, it's not me, it's you. I haven't changed. You've changed, bro. This is them who have changed. Remember those good old days. What has happened? Paul appeals to their former relationship. He appeals to that beautiful time when they first met and they first embraced the gospel together. And he softens his words, right? He entreats them in verse 12 as brothers and sisters. So again, that tells us Paul does not think the Galatian church, the churches in Galatia are officially heretical. He doesn't think that they've crossed that line, but he, he knows that's the path they're going down. But still, he softens his tone. He says, brothers, sisters, children. He speaks to them as a father speaks to children. He speaks to them as equals. Brothers and sisters, he softens the tone. He lights the mood. And he, remember when things were good. What has happened? He wants them to go back and return to their first love. To return to their former love and that former relationship that Paul had with them. And that's actually what the phrase in verse 12 means. Uh, it, it's, it's actually a phrase, if you were to read commentaries on this, that's kind of difficult and ambiguous. But almost all the commentaries that I read are in agreement that this idea of become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That's essentially Paul telling them that I have not lost love for you. It's you who've lost love for me. I consider myself one of you. I still have love and desire and passion for you. And I'm asking you to return that to me. Really, this entire section of pathos is Paul entreating them to soften their hearts toward him. To soften their hearts toward him. And by the way, we actually see this. I, won't, I, won't, uh, I forgot the reference, but we actually see this in 2 Corinthians uh, the book of 2 Corinthians is written under similar circumstances where a group of what Paul mockingly refers to as super apostles, these new teachers come into Corinth and basically tell everybody, oh, the apostles are wrong, we have the true authority, and the Corinthians start to believe them. And Paul says something very similar when he, he tells them in 2 Corinthians, he says, make room in your heart for us, 
For it is not we who have cast you out, it is you who have cast us out. So we're asking you to open your arms and make room in your hearts for us. Paul is asking them to soften their hearts toward Paul and return to their first love. Now, that technically is the whole sermon today, or it could be, but you're not going to get off the hook that easy. That is the gist of it. That's the purpose of this section. As you're going to see, verse 21, Paul's going to kick back into biblical argumentation and logical reasoning. But he just had this moment where his emotions overcame him. And he had to just entreat them, what on earth has happened to our relationship? And he calls them back to their first love. He's not speaking from bitterness and jealousy. He's not, this is not just a knee-jerk reaction letter. He's not just saying, I'll show them. He loves these people. And he wants what they once had. But I noticed something additional, more of an application, if you will, that I would actually like us to spend most of our time walking through this letter on. So this isn't so much the purpose for Paul. This isn't the purpose of this portion. We've already established that. But this is more so just an extended application because I was struck as I read this emotional appeal to this group. I was struck at how much this reminded me of the difficulty of evangelism and discipleship in local church ministry. Right? You, you can't read through this and think ministry was easy for Paul. Ministry was a cakewalk for Paul. Right? You, you, can really, you can't read any of Paul's letters and come away with that impression. But this is just one of those examples of how, for Paul, ministry was difficult and hard and complex and oftentimes it was filled with heartbreak and betrayal and worry and discouragement. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take this passage and remind us of some important things that we need to remember and consider as we are also in similar manner to Paul, making disciples of the nation. We are engaged in evangelism and discipleship just like the apostles were. So really what this sermon is going to be is six things to remember about discipleship. Now, before I start breaking those down, I want to define what I mean by discipleship, because it's not technically a biblical word. Disciple is a biblical word, and even that is used differently throughout Scripture. A disciple could be used of a believer, or it could be used in a more general sense of just anyone following Christ. Right? All of the people in Jesus' ministry, all of the crowds who would follow him were called disciples. Many of them didn't love Jesus, they didn't care for Jesus, they were kind of just testing him out, but they were following him, so they were disciples. So the word disciple is a biblical word, but in evangelicalism we sort of talk about discipleship. And one of the things that's really funny is uh, it actually can sometimes become a, a hot-button debate of how to define this. I remember actually Jesse Lapp was talking, he's, he's doing uh, school, he's going to seminary, and he mentioned, how do you define that? Because there's like this debate happening, and um, so I'm not here to give some objective Definition. I just want to tell you how I'm using it, how I'm thinking about it, so that we can continue on with the sermon. And the way I'm defining discipleship right now is the whole shebang of the Great Commission. All right? Sometimes people say, what is discipleship? Is discipleship my personal walk with Christ? That's my discipleship. Is discipleship merely preaching the gospel, evangelism, right? trying to bring people into the Christian faith? Is discipleship, no, after evangelism, now that they're saved, now we walk with Christ together. That's discipleship, right? So there's these competing understandings, and I'm just throwing them all into the boat. I'm just saying the whole thing, from preaching the gospel to lost people, getting them saved and baptized, bringing them into the church, and then walking with them for the rest of their life. That's what I mean by discipleship. 
And I mean it that way because that's, that's Paul's relationship to the Galatians. That's what he did. He went to an unbelieving group. He preached the gospel. They believed. He planted churches. He taught. He left. And he tried to leave something in place so that they could continue walking with the Lord. He, he has the whole thing in mind here. And that is what the whole Great Commission is. Remember Jesus' Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And what do we do? We make disciples of the nations. So the Great Commission is the church turning the whole world into a Christian world. That's the goal. That's the end game. We disciple the nations. Every nation, every country becoming Christianized. This is a religion of world conquest. Make no mistake about it. We go and we disciple the nations. So our local church has been placed in a very small port portion of a, of a very large nation. And we are contributing to what? Making disciples of the nations. And what does that look like? Baptizing them in the triune name, right? Getting them into the faith. And then Jesus teaching all that Jesus commanded. So it's both evangelism, get them saved, get them baptized, and graft them into the church. And then walk with them so that we can become more like Christ until we die. So I'm talking about evangelism. I'm talking about local church ministry. I'm talking about our whole Christian life when I talk about discipleship. And here are six important things that we need to just remember and remind ourselves of. A little bit of a gut check, if you will, to remind us of how to do discipleship effectively. And so here's the first thing we need to remember about discipleship. Discipleship must rely on the sovereignty of God. Discipleship must rely on the sovereignty of God. Here's where I get that from. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He reminds them, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul goes back to, how did I meet these people? And Paul reminds them of this really important truth. You were never on my itinerary. He tells the Galatians, you were not part of my plan. And, you know, if you were to study like the book of Acts, one of the things you would have to study is what we call Paul's missionary journeys. And, and your, the back of your Bible will sometimes have maps that trace his different missionary journeys. Paul was a missionary. And he was intentionally going from place to place creating strategies. We're going to go here and try this, and we're going to go there and try this. Paul had a sort of missionary itinerary. He had a plan. He tried to be led by the Spirit. He tried to go where he could, that was best to go. And Paul is reminding them, the Galatians were not on my itinerary. You, I, I was not planning to preach the gospel to you. They weren't on my list. But what does verse 13 tell us? They were on God's list. They were part of God's itinerary. They were part of God's plan. So what, is, what does God do? God sovereignly, providentially intervenes in Paul's life. And he, he moves Paul in a way that I'd be willing to guess if Paul had the choice, he wouldn't have chosen that way. What happens? Paul got sick. Or maybe not sick. He had some sort of bodily ailment that threw off the plans. Something was happening to Paul, a physical affirmity, your, your translation might say, that forced him to the Galatians. Now, what is it? We don't know. The internal evidence suggests it was probably some kind of blindness to his eyes, uh, because he uses that expression, you would have given me your very eyes if you could, so maybe that was more literal, like he was saying, that was my issue, and you would have helped me with that issue. That may just be an expression, too. And you'll find in, at the end of the book, Galatians 6, Paul says, look at with what large letters I write with my own hand. 
Why is he mentioning the large letters? Probably because he had bad vision, had to write really big. So it might, may have had something to do with his eyes, um, but it's hard to work that out logically. Like, how did blindness change course? Because that was a... So some scholars think it was maybe malaria, given the region that he was working in before he went up to Galatians. There's a good logical case to be made that maybe he contracted malaria in the way that you treated in that day was you went to higher elevation. So he got malaria in the lowlands, and then he had to go up to the high region of Galatia for healing, and then he just stumbled upon these people as he was healing. But we don't know, and quite frankly, according to this argument, it actually doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, what we need to know, though, is that it was a bodily ailment that messed up Paul's plans. It threw him off course and it forced him into a place that he wasn't planning on going. He didn't want to go. And then, lo and behold, the kingdom advances. The gospel is proclaimed and people come to faith and churches are planted. Why? Because of Paul's plans? No, because of the providence of God. Paul says this in the book of Philippians about his imprisonment. He writes that letter from prison and he tells the Philippians, don't panic that I was put in prison because it's actually served the gospel because now I'm preaching the gospel to the whole imperial guard. See, God loved to destroy Paul's pants, plans, made him sick, had to go up to Galatia. God arrested, now he gets to preach to the governors and to Caesar. So you see, Paul is trusting and relying upon God's providential control over his ministry. And so it's important for us to remember that, not only to, to take great hope in that, but to, so to speak, keep our eyes peeled, if you will. In, in, in other words, you, you've probably heard Christians talk about uh, looking for the doors that God is opening. Right? That, that's what we do. Sometimes God throws an evangelistic opportunity right into your lap. And we need to be open to that. We need to be watching with spiritual eyes about, has God put me in a position that's made it easy to share the gospel? And then we need to be faithful and obey it. That's what Paul did. Paul said, well, I'm sick. I guess I've got, got to go up to Galatia. There's people here who are willing to take care of me. I preach the gospel to them, and it sticks. It works. We need to trust God's sovereignty, not only in terms of our hope for the world, but that he's going to put us in places and positions to share the love of Christ with people. Now, this does not mean that we merely rely just on those crazy providential workings, right? Paul wasn't just sitting there saying, all right, God, put me where you want me. He still planned his evangelism out. He still actively engaged in searching for people. And so that's kind of our twofold relationship to God's providence. On the one hand, and I need to do better this as one of the pastors of this church, but I want us to be more actively involved in bringing the gospel to people. Not, not necessarily just passively waiting for God's providence to shine through, but how is it that I am, who is it that I'm praying for? Who are, who are my neighbors or my family members or my loved ones that don't know the Lord that I want to be intentionally going after with an agenda? But in the midst of those plans, in the midst of that effort, we also need to trust that God is going to do what God wants to do. And sometimes it's not going to be even comfortable. For example, I think one of the greatest examples of this is the whole COVID-19 government shutdowns. So far, it's been nothing but a burden. To the church, to missionaries, it's been nothing but a burden. It's made ministry harder. It's made evangelism harder. It's made missions harder. It's been very difficult. But you know what? I'd imagine so was Paul's ailment. But look how God used it. Who knows what church historians are going to say 100 years from now about the great government shutdowns of 2020. Who knows what Christian historians are going to look at and see, see all the doors this opened? We might not be able to see them, 
But we need to trust the sovereignty of God. So in other words, let me say this. Sometimes in church life and ministry, things don't go according to plan. But when that happens, just remember, they're always going according to plan. They might not go according to our plans, but God is providentially, He's in control. So if we want to do discipleship effectively, we need to rely on and trust the, the providence of God and be faithful wherever He plants us. Trust the providence of God. The second important thing for us to remember is that discipleship tells the truth. Christians have to be in the game of truth-telling. We have to be those who speak the truth even when it's uncomfortable to hear. Notice what Paul says. He reminds them in verse 14 of this, this great relationship they had. Right? He tells them, we were friends. I, I came to you and, and I didn't come to you in power and authority. Right? Paul didn't swoop in with a limo. Someone opened the door for him. He didn't have a bunch of groupies. He came as a sick, weak man. He was a burden to them. They had to take care of him. And yet, Paul says, that didn't affect the way you treated me or my gospel. As a matter of fact, you went above and beyond. You treated me not like I was just some sick Christian man. You treated me like I was an angel. No, like I was Jesus himself. But then he reminds them in verse 15, something has changed. What has become of your blessedness? That, that word blessedness means to consider myself happy or to consider myself blessed. They used to be grateful that Paul was brought to them by God. And you can imagine how strong an argument that the providence of God is on Paul's side right here. Because remember, what are they doing right now? They're trying to compare, should we listen to Paul or should we listen to the Judaizers? And one of Paul's subtle arguments is, which one was God obviously providentially working in? The Judaizers who came barging into the churches that I planted to take you off course? Or the fact that God miraculously providentially brought me to you? And you even yourself said, we are so blessed. We are so lucky. We consider ourselves blessed. We consider ourselves happy. And now all of a sudden, I leave. The Judaizers come in and you no longer consider it a blessing that I ever showed up. What happened to that blessedness? And then Paul asked them after you know, saying, you would have gouged out your own eyes for me. He says this in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I don't know exactly what truth he's talking about. He, he might be talking about the first gospel truth that he preached to them. Meaning, I came to you and I told you the truth about God, the truth about the gospel, and you loved it and you embraced it. And now suddenly that same truth that made us friends, that same truth that united us together is now the truth that offends you. It might be that. Or it might be the truth of this letter. Meaning Paul is anticipating, he knows that they're going to receive this letter and they're going to interpret Paul as our enemy. He's bashing us. He's bashing our new spiritual leaders. He's telling us that they're not saved. They believe in a false gospel, that we believe in false gods. We don't know exactly what he means, but the general point is this. Is Paul knows that sometimes telling people the truth doesn't go down well. Paul also knows, what does he imply in verse 16? That we want people to be more logical and not shoot the messenger. But here's what we need to remember in discipleship. They will always shoot the messenger. Our God is unapproachable. You can't shoot him. He dwells in an unapproachable light. So if they can't go after God, they'll go after the next best thing. Which is you, his messenger. We, we want people to, listen, if the truth offends you, the truth offends you. But... 
Don't take it out on me. But Paul says, they do take it out on me. I, I'm telling them the truth, and they don't want to hear it, and it's made me an enemy. It's, it's the truth that offended them, but they're taking it out on me. Our gospel will offend the world. The truth of Christian life will offend the world. And not even just the world, it offends Christians. Because what's the other part of the Great Commission? Teach them all that I've commanded you. Sometimes we as Christians have to confront believers. Sometimes we have to confront one another. And if we're all honest with ourselves, sometimes truth hurts. I, I always talk about how it's so easy, and I'm talking about myself here, to love righteousness from a distance. What I mean by that is we love truth-tellers as long as they're not in the context of telling me the truth. We read through the Gospels, and I just love watching Jesus tear the Pharisees to shreds. It is just so entertaining. Go get them, Jesus. Go after those hypocrites. Get them. And he goes after the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, and he holds no punches. He calls them names, he mocks them, he insults them, he tears down their worldview, and it's glorious and we love it. But most of us, if we're being honest, would know that if Jesus was living his earthly ministry now and he spent two weeks in my household, I think he'd have a lot to say to me. And suddenly I wouldn't have the same mentality. You get me, Jesus, go after me. You see, we love when Jesus tells the truth to the Pharisees, but we don't want Jesus to tell the truth to us. One of the most important things to remember about discipleship, Christian discipleship, is that we are going to have to tell the truth, and the truth is going to have to be told to us. And it's our job as Christians to make sure that when another Christian tells me the truth, they are not my enemy. Telling me the truth does not make someone my enemy. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I would rather my brothers and sisters in Christ tell me hard truths than the enemies of God flatter me. Discipleship means telling hard truths. Now, let me make one quick clarification before we move on. This also takes a lot of discernment. Because one thing that I'll admit I've done in my own life, and I've seen throughout my entire Christian life, is that sometimes telling the truth actually becomes a, a veneer that we hide behind when we're actually just being rude. I've done it in my life, and I've seen people do it, where we've been very ungracious and uncharitable and harsh and cold with people. And then when they get offended, we just, listen, I'm, I just say it as it is. So, sorry, sorry, I just call it like I see it. Or maybe you're being a jerk. Right? Notice, Paul cared about telling the truth, and it was an unadulterated, unfiltered truth. But what does he say in verse 20? I wish I could be present with you now. Why? Because I want to change my tone. Paul knows that I want to effectively tell you the truth. I want to lovingly and graciously tell you the truth. And, Paul's, and we'll get to verse 20 in a minute. He said, because of our distance, I don't know what you need. I don't know if you need hard, tough love or if you need nurture. I, I don't know what you need because I'm not with you. But notice, he's willing to change his tone. He's not willing to compromise on the truth, but he is willing to compromise on how he delivers it. So we need to be wise and charitable. And we need to be gracious and understanding and patient with one another and with unbelievers. But there is a thin line that we never want to cross where we're so patient and so gracious that we compromise. We can't do that. Paul says, if it makes me your enemy, so be it. 
But I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth about the gospel. I'm going to tell you the truth about God. I'm going to tell you the truth about you. Discipleship is about telling the truth. But notice we talked about how the alternative to that is oftentimes flattery. And that really leads us into the next point. Because that's what Paul noticed in the Judaizers. So we see that discipleship trusts the sovereignty of God. Discipleship tells the truth. And number three, discipleship fights wolves. Discipleship fights wolves. Look at what he says in verse 17. He changes focuses from us and you to they. Now he's talking about the Judaizers. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. So Paul is not afraid to turn his attention to the false teachers and say, stop listening to them. They're wrong. Their motives are impure. Flee from them. Paul knows that I am the pastor of these sheep. I am the shepherd of these sheep. And while shepherd needs to be nurturing and loving and caring and tender with his sheep, he does not believe that he must be nurturing and loving and tender to the wolves who have come into the pen. Yes, we must be gracious and loving and kind and tendering and nurturing. But sometimes when wolves come to the pen, it's time like David to get out your slingshot and throw rocks. Paul has no problem in this letter, in his other letters. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see this in the life of the prophets. Paul has no problem saying, they're false teachers. Don't listen to them. We live in a very ecumenical culture. We live in a culture that loves to say, anytime Christians go after your favorite teacher or the popular pastor that everybody loves, they're so cold and divisive and hard-hearted. Why can't we all just get along? But make no mistake about it. The truth-tellers are not the divisive ones. It's the false teachers who are the divisive ones. That's the whole theme of this portion. Paul's saying, it was before the Judaizers showed up that there was no division. We had sweet communion before they showed up. Who's divisive? Who's the one dividing the body of Christ? Is it Paul who's saying, get the wolves out of the pen? Or is it the wolves who came in and scattered us in the first place? True theology is never divisive. It's false theology that's divisive. It's the wolves who scatter the flock, not the shepherds, not the truth. It's not fun, it's not easy, and the culture doesn't like it, but sometimes we're going to have to tell people, hey, I know you really like that person, but that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. That, that, is, that person is not your friend. I like to listen to their sermons often, and it is nothing but making you feel good about yourself. And notice, that's exactly what Paul warns us of. Verse 17, they make much of you. They build you up, they encourage you, they puff you up. But they do so with impure motives, but not for a good reason. Why, why are they building and puffing people up? He says, they want to shut you out that you might make much of them. They're in it for their glory. They want you to be dependent on them. They want you to look at them and say, these are our great and brilliant and wise teachers. They want you to be dependent upon them. We couldn't do this without that. Hallelujah. They butter them up for sinful purposes. You see, Paul's not afraid to, to encourage people when they need encouragement. To compliment people, he, he says in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. 
Right? And I think that's something important for our church to know. You know, we have a lot of people who do a lot of things behind the scenes. And they're always telling me, don't tell anybody. I'm not doing this for recognition. And I appreciate that. That is a glorious thing. But I just want you to know, sometimes it is appropriate to build someone else up. Sometimes it is appropriate to, as Paul says, to make much of you for the right reasons. Sometimes you deserve recognition. Sometimes you deserve the church saying, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for serving us. You deserve that. But we have to be careful that it's not coming from wolves, that it's for flattery, for manipulation. And that leads us to our next point. Discipleship must fight wolves. Number four, discipleship must exalt Christ. What do I mean by that specifically? Notice again in verse 17, 18, the Judaizers are ultimately in it for their gain. They're ultimately in it that they would be raised up, that they would be honored, that they would be glorified. And so we need to keep in mind that we are prone to that temptation as well. Whether we like it or not, especially in 21st century American Christianity, discipleship can be a really cool gig. You can make a lot of money being a professional evangelist. You can make a lot of money being a megachurch pastor. You can make a lot of money being an itinerant traveling preacher or a famous Christian apologist. There is fame and popularity and even financial benefit to ministry. And not all of that stuff is bad, but it does mean it comes with great temptation. It comes with a great temptation to say, no, 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 you should be reading my apologetics, not his. No, 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 you should be going to our church, not that one. No, 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 no. You need my teachings. This is all about how great I am, lifting us up. But no, what is the end goal of discipleship? As John says, that he might increase and we might decrease. We are not in it for us. And we need to have a humble posture as we go about making disciples of the nations. We are doing this for God's glory and for God's glory alone. This has nothing to do with us and making much of ourselves. Discipleship trusts the sovereignty of God. Discipleship tells the truth. Discipleship fights the wolves. Discipleship exalts Christ. And number five, discipleship is difficult. We cannot go into this thinking this is an easy task. This is an overnight thing. This is the push of a button. Why? Because how does Paul describe it? How does Paul metaphorically describe his discipleship process with the Galatians in verse 19? My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul describes this process of evangelizing and planting churches. His, his ideal metaphor is not planting a beautiful flower that will one day blossom. And all I have to do is just water it a little bit every day. That's not his preferred metaphor. It's labor, it's anguish. It's painful. In other words, discipleship should never be glamorous. We should never think of it as being a glamorous gig. It has become that, I would argue, in many spheres and circles in American Christianity. Discipleship is cool and hip, and we've got superstar evangelists and superstar pastors. But for Paul, discipleship is as glamorous as giving birth. It's as easy as labor. It's as quick is labor. We cannot go into our local church ministry and think this is going to be quick and this is going to be easy. Your sanctification is going to be long and hard. My sanctification is going to be long and hard. I'm going to step on your toes sometimes. 
I'm going to annoy you sometimes. I'm going to offend you sometimes. And you're going to do the same to me. It's labor. It's long. It's hard. People let us down. We let each other down. But notice Paul doesn't just give up. Paul says, I'm literally going back and rebirthing you. We don't just give up when we're going, it's tough. We don't just quit local church ministry. We don't just quit evangelism. We don't just quit because it's hard. But if you go in expecting and knowing, I'm going to need to be patient. This is going to require long suffering. This is going to require endurance. This is going to require a thick skin. If we establish that beforehand, it will be much easier to continue sanctification. Paul had no dreams that, this, that the mission that Christ called him to as an apostle was going to be this light, easy, quick thing where he'd become a superstar and everyone would love him and the job would be easy. Paul says that sometimes you have to give birth and sometimes you even have to give birth twice. Sometimes you have to think the child was born but then be told by the doctors, nope, nope, not ready yet. You have to keep pushing. Until Christ has formed in us, we continue to labor it's not always easy. Discipleship is not sexy. It's not hip. It's not cool. It's not glamorous. It's difficult. It's laborious. But as we conclude, it's always worth it. And the last point, I, I think I said six, but forgive me. I meant to, there must have been a typo. Five points, forgive me. Or did I, did I misdo it? This is all free. This is number five? Okay, I apologize. I said six. This is just five. So that, the good news, we're, we're almost done. Five, discipleship is intimately personal. Look at verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. Paul does not like doing this from a distance. He's taking advantage of it. He's not just going to do nothing. He's taking advantage of it. But he does not want to do this via pen pal. He wants to be with them. And he says that that actually has ministerial advantages. Because like I said, I want to change my tone. He knows that via letter, it's hard to establish tone. I don't know how you're interpreting this. I don't know how you're reading this. I don't know if I'm effectively communicating all that I want to communicate. And, and when he's with them, he can know more about the context. He can know more about the details. He could read body language. They could read his body language. He could adjust his tone by what they need. Paul knows that doing this over letter is simply not ideal. Is discipleship is personal. We have to be in each other's lives. We have to be in each other's business. We have to be together, physically. Now, before I talk about my uh, applications of this principle, let me just first make clear that I know that it's ironic we're talking about this still kind of in the middle of this COVID-19 shutdown thing. So I'm talking general discipleship. I'm not just talking about government shutdown and COVID-19, okay? So for... People who are listening on, this is not an indictment on them, okay? I'm talking discipleship in all generations, in all ages. And here are a few applications of this personal discipleship principle that we're learning about. Number one, we need to avoid e-cycles. We're in the business of disciples, not e-cycles. In other words, there is no such thing as internet church. There is no such thing as church from home. That doesn't exist. People say, oh, church is not a building, church is not a building. Well, of course it's not a building, but it's, it is a people. So saying you need to go to church and you need to be in church and you need to be with the people of God, and I'm not saying church is a building. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying. I'm saying when you sit at home in your pajamas watching it with just your kids, you're not in the people of God. You're not in church. 
I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about this. I wish I could be present with you. That needs to be our heart's desire. When you're sick and you can't come to church, that's fine. When life is difficult and you've got to serve, that's fine. But my hope is that our cry is still, I wish I could be with them. I wish I could be present. Discipleship is not done online. Discipleship is not virtual. We need to be with each other so that we can change our tone. And we can be more effective. I, I would challenge you just to ask all of our teachers in this room who are gearing up for a semester of distance learning. Ask them how ideal teaching distance is. They're doing it because they love the Lord and they love these kids. But every one of them this is not ideal. And guess what? They even have a closer relationship than Paul had because they have Vimeo and voice. And, so it's even more personal. And, and so it'd be easy to chastise teachers and say, well, listen, it's not like you're doing letters. I mean, they can still see you. They can still hear your voice. They're still looking at your face. But even our teachers know, even with that amazing technology, they would rather be in the classroom with these kids. Distance learning is not ideal. We thank God that we're able to do it in times of emergency. Just like Paul. By the way, this letter, you realize this is what we call, ready for this? Technology. That's what this is. Paul utilized technology. The handwritten letter on papyrus, that's not an eternal thing that's always existed. That was invented. So I'm not saying to abandon technology. I'm not saying to abandon no discipleship can ever be done virtually. I'm not saying that. Paul did the exact opposite. Paul said, I can't be there, so let me use the next best thing. And that should be our mentality. Sometimes we have to do things online. Sometimes we have to do things long distance. And, and, and we should take advantage of that. We should do it. But never should we think that this could ultimately replace personal interaction, physically present, with the local church. This also means, related but still a side note, I would challenge everyone in here to be very, very cautious with how you use your social media accounts. Again, do not abandon them. Do not forsake them. Paul didn't do that. We should have, I mean, it's not a sin to not have them. But if you have them, there's nothing wrong with that. We can use them for the glory of God. But I would just challenge you that difficult conversations, we need the mentality of verse 20. I'd rather be with you. I don't want to confront your sin over a direct message. I don't want to challenge your theology over a Facebook debate. These are conversations we want to have in person. Now I get it. There are some circumstances we can't. You've got family members that live in another state. You can't. But I would still recommend I would call them before I would DM them. I would FaceTime them before I would write them a letter. The more personal, the better. That's the principle here. The more personal, the better. Discipleship is an intimately personal thing. And God has given us many great advantages, and He's given us many great tools, and we should use them when we need to. But at the end of the day, I want to be in your home. I want you in my home. I want to be in the church. I want you in the church. We need to be together, especially when we're having difficult conversations. So be very careful having Facebook debates and deep, important confrontations online. If they can be done in person, the better. And just one more application of this. This is really more for me than anybody else in this room. But this especially means, notice how Paul is sort of the overarching pastor of all of these churches. So this is a pastor telling the lay members that I want to be with you. This is a pastor speaking to lay members that I want to be with you. And so what that tells you is that this applies equally, if not doubly, for the pastors. 
The pastors need to be intimately with the sheep. And this becomes important because what we are seeing in our day and age is the exact opposite. We are seeing these large church structures that have developed polity where your pastor is so famous and so rich and so well known that even to be a member of that church, you want to see that man, you've got to go through his agent. And there's usually a two-week waiting process. And you have to submit your questions beforehand. And even then, a lot of times, you're not going to see him. So what they do is the pastor, he only interacts with the staff. He disciples the staff. He trains the staff. And then the staff handles all of those, you know, sheep. Folks, that was not the kind of shepherding that Paul exercised. Paul was not a superstar. Do you, do you realize there are hundreds of churches across this country where it is impossible for you to shake the pastor's hand after church? Can't be done. He's going to go backstage, and they're going to have trained volunteers funneling where you need to go. You know what was Paul's cry? I want to be with you. I don't want to be above you, far out, unapproachable. I want to be with you so that we can have a conversation. Discipleship is intimately personal. And we need to keep it as personal as we possibly can. So let me just read you one concluding statement that I think summarizes all five of our points. Discipleship relies on the work of a sovereign God. It speaks the truth in love, and it fights off wolves. And this work is incredibly difficult, and it is incredibly personal. But we do it all for the glory of God. Like Paul, it will be filled with heartbreak and betrayal, but our labor is never in vain. And making disciples of the nations is a mission that is always worth the struggle. It is not fame that I desire. No stature in my brother's eye I pray it said about my life That I live more to build your name